0: We're going to uh, read from our scriptures in Luke, uh, chapter 24. The text will appear on the screen. This is the the point in the service. You're allowed to put your phones on and your iPads out and uh, turn to your various Bibles. We're going to read from uh, Luke, chapter 24, verse 27. The context of the story is Jesus has risen. And two of his followers are, haven't realized that, that Jesus is risen. And they're leaving Jerusalem, going to Emmaus because they're anxious, maybe they're fearful. And along the journey, they're, they're encountered by this guy. It happens to be the risen Jesus, but they don't understand it at that point. And we pick up here. This is Jesus, after beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that's Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going. Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly. Stay with us for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them. He took bread. Gave thanks. Broke it. And began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened told us what happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Jesus is alive. Jesus meets with his people. We can be sure of that. The story of Luke tells us such things that post-resurrection, he encounters his people through his Holy Spirit now and opens our eyes. We've been uh, journeying for the last number of months, exploring our vision statement at Chipping Camden uh, Baptist Church. It's, it's on this uh, banner over here of proclaiming Jesus Christ to people today, of making disciples, of building God's kingdom, of praying for revival, planting new churches and reaching the nations. It's, it's kind of a really central aspect to who we are as a church, that we want to make Jesus known. He's not a secret just for us. He's good news for all people. And it's our task, whether as, as leaders or as followers of Jesus, to witness to him and share our faith. We want to build disciples, make disciples, and pass on what we know. That it's not, again, just for the house group leaders or for uh, the youth leaders or junior church leaders. This is everyone. If you're a disciple, a follower of Jesus, our call is to make disciples. And we've explored some of that. To build God's kingdom, a kingdom that will endure. A kingdom that will outlast our government and our nation and the whole of this world. His, the increase of his government and his kingdom will know no end. That's what we're part of. We're also uh, exploring praying for revival. Of crying out to God for a fresh move, a wonderful move of his spirit. Committed to the tasks of the kingdom. But praying for a sovereign move of the Holy Spirit in this place, in this day planting new churches, and throughout the course of our sermon series, we've been uh, touching on reaching the nations when we've sent out teams, heard back from them, reminding ourselves that the God of this world is passionate for all people. And I wanted uh, just to touch some more on this theme of praying. Praying. We looked a few weeks ago at the whole Uh, disciples prayer sometimes we call it the Lord's Prayer you know the one our Father who is in heaven hallowed be your name The Phil has reminded us just a couple of weeks before Easter he talked about persistence in prayer and I want to come back just a little bit to some of the prayers of Jesus not the prayer that he taught his disciples when they said teach us to pray but one or two of the other things that we can glean from his example He's living, he's he's showing what it means to be a faithful follower, a person, a man, full of the Holy Spirit, living life fully as a way of encouraging us to pray. And I've been thinking, I want to focus on not just the disciples' prayer, the Lord's prayer, but the example of Jesus as a prayerful man to encourage us as people to pray, and there are three particular themes that come out again and again as we read the gospel stories, as we, as we notice what Jesus does as an example to us. That very often his prayer is characterized with thanksgiving, thankfulness. That his prayer very often, not only with thanksgiving, is characterized by a word called supplication. In other words, praying for himself, of coming with his requests before God, his Father. And thirdly, what we, we use this word intercession of praying for others. So there's a whole aspect of thanksgiving. There's a whole aspect of praying for himself and a whole aspect to Jesus' prayers throughout the gospel story of praying for others. And I want to focus on those three areas just this morning for a short time before communion to help us maybe learn some more about praying and to put into practice the ways of Jesus. A prayer in the Jewish Passover that was said, which I thought uh, quite timely, At Passover, Jewish people would pray. Even if our mouths were filled with songs like the sea, our tongues with joy like its mighty waves, our lips with praise like the breadth of the sky, if our eyes shone like the sun and the moon, and our hands were spread out like the eagles of heaven, if our feet were swift as the hinds, that's the deer, we should still be incapable of thanking you adequately for one thousandth part of all the love you have shown for us. I wanted to, to read and begin our sermon with that, with that little prayer that Jesus prayed with the two disciples, post-resurrection. He talked about the scriptures and gathered together them to eat. And as he broke bread, he gave thanks. That again and again, in the character of Jesus, this thanksgiving, this this honouring of God, this turning to God and saying, thank you. And so often it was just in the stuff of life, of ministry, of, of him going and coming, of encountering people. And we hear recorded in the gospel stories what he utters and how he utters it. Prayers on the run, maybe. So in the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, recorded in John 6, uh, chapter 6 and Matthew 15, then Jesus took the loaves and gave... Thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. Feeding of the 4,000, he told the crowd to sit down. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish. And when he had given, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And they, in turn, to the people. Again, on the road uh, with the two, breaking bread, giving thanks. That it characterizes... Jesus' life, of giving thanks, of, of stopping in the midst of life, and stopping in the humdrum, the busyness, the, the stuff that's going on. I mean, 5,000 and 4,000 men, plus the women, plus the children, that's a big crowd and a lot going on at once, isn't it? I mean, you could think that Jesus is distracted by, by getting them all to sit down in the right numbers and getting the disciples kind of geared up, ready to take out the baskets because they've got not got much faith in about what's to happen. And everyone is hungry, lots of pressing. And in the midst of the busyness the stress maybe of that circumstance, he just stops and gives thanks. It's great to remind ourselves to be thankful. Just this week, I went to see uh, my friends and my goddaughter. She's five, and um, she, her sister is three. And their parent, the, the parents, my friends, are doing their best to teach Manners to these little, uh, these little girls. You know what it's like as parents? We were, yeah, there's a lot of laughing and smiling. That, that I brought a little gift from my goddaughter and I gave it to her and she was so excited. Some bangles from India and an Indian outfit it was all glitzy and all very exciting for a five year old. And she was so excited and she was opening it and putting it on and just like, ah, you know, as five year olds are. And mum and dad kind of said, And um, what do you say? She's like, Oh, yeah, thank you, she said. And uh, I brought a little bit of chocolate because it was Easter. And as a godfather, I like to spoil my godchildren. And, uh, you know, again, as I gave it, what do you say? Thank you, Uncle Edward, they said. It was just teaching. Just reminding them as small children that Thanksgiving is so much part of the attitude of gratitude. The attitude that we instill in one another. But how much more for us as children of God? That Jesus, as the Son of God, fully in relationship with the Father, was constantly giving thanks to God for the good things in life, for the opportunity of the circumstance, for the moments of saying, Thank you, thank you, Father. Even in some of the more challenging words that Jesus says, there's this aspect of thanksgiving. If you turn to, to Matthew 11, uh, you can if you want, but uh, i if, if just give you the reference or if you want to listen to this again and pick it up. It's eleven twenty to 27. Jesus has been speaking about the kingdom and many miracles and signs followed him. But not everyone, not everyone embraced the kingdom. People started to harden their hearts against Jesus and say, oh no, he's not of God. We don't want to listen to that one we don't want to to believe that this is the one sent of God verse 20 then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they didn't repent woe to you Chorazin woe to you Bethsaida if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes but I tell you it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, will you come down to the depths? If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for this Was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. When Jesus went to the tomb of his friend Lazarus, his friend who died. Just before, he called Lazarus out from the grave, rose him back to the li- to life. He stood and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me and knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of those standing that you believe, you may, they may believe that you sent me. Even in the midst of the difficult, even in the midst of the, what is seemingly apparent opposition, Of death, of the victory of death over a close friend of Jesus. Even when it seems that people turn their back on God and his kingdom. Even then, Jesus can find ways of stopping and saying, yet I thank you. Yet I thank you. Why? Well, Paul begins to pick this theme up in Romans 8. He says... That we believe because He has risen, because the Holy Spirit has come, that all things work together for good for those who love Him. That's a huge statement. A huge, huge statement to make. Just knowing and looking out and understanding some of the situations, even of this week. To make that faith promise, God works all things together for good. For those who love him. And he goes on to say, I'm convinced that nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God. And he says, even in the midst of the worst of circumstances, when our hearts are being torn apart, yet we can trust God. And utter those simple words, but hugely profound, hugely profound statement of faith. Thank you. Father, what greater moment or expression of faith can there be when everything is saying, give up, doubt, disbelief. It's all going horribly wrong. Yet a disciple can stand firm in their faith in those moments and say, yet I trust you, yet I will thank you. Even in the midst of this awful circumstance, Not thanking God for the awfulness, but trusting Him. Thanksgiving. It characterized Paul's letters 15 times in his letters to churches and individuals. He says, give thanks. To the Corinthians, he thanked God 10 times for their faith their witness and the t- their testimony in philippians he thanked god for their fellowship in the gospel as i read at the beginning 1thessalonians 5:18 give thanks in all circumstances for this is god's will for you in christ that as we see on the lips of jesus is living may thanksgiving flow freely may we see Just the bounteous goodness, and say, Thank you, Lord. And even in the midst of the greatest trials, know that He holds us in His hand. Know that His Holy Spirit is within us. Know that He is the overcoming one, and we are in Him, and still we can give thanks. Spurgeon said this, to give thanks to the name of God, that is what it means to be his people. This command to give thanks runs right down the center of all Christian worship. I don't know if you know that hymn, Now Thank We All Our God. The older members, yeah, those that have been in more traditional. And they're now thinking, why don't we ever sing that song? For the benefit of those who've never heard it, now, thank we, it's a, they, they sometimes sing it to a really dreary tune, don't they? It's a bit of a, a, a misnomer, this, this, but the words are brilliant. Now thank we all our God with heart and hands and voices, who wondrous things has done in whom this world rejoices, who from our mother's arms has blessed us on our way with countless gifts of love and still is our stay. I should now test people and see if you can do the second verse. Oh, may this bounteous God through all our life be near us. With ever joyful hearts and blessed peace to cheer us and keep us in his grace and guide us when perplexed and free us from all ills in this world and the next. All praise and thanks to God the Father now be given, the Son and him who reigns with them in highest heaven, the one eternal God whom earth and heaven adore, for thus it was, is now, and shall be evermore. Do you know who wrote that? No, it was a chap called Right Country, <laughs> Martin Reinhardt. He lived in, between 1856 and 1649. He lived in Eilenburg in Saxony. The beginning of Thirty Years' War, you're thinking, history lesson? The walled city of Eilenburg became, in this war, a refuge for political and military figures and fugitives. But as people flocked to this walled city as a safe haven, it got overcrowded and full. And a deadly pestilence and famine took hold. The armies that were opposing them overran it three times. This man, this hymn writer, this pastor, opened his home as a refuge for the victims. And even though he was often hard-pressed to provide for his own family... During the height of the severe plague in 1637, Pastor Reinhardt was the only surviving pastor in the town. He conducted as many as 50 funerals a day, reputed to be 5,000 in his ministry, including that of his wife. And in those years, he was a prolific hymn writer, And now, thank we all our God, with hearts, and hands, and voices, was one of His. He'd grasped that no matter what, Jesus reigns. That even as the storms rage, they do not deny and cannot supplant or swamp the truth that He is risen, and that the peace. And the knowledge that we are in him cannot be robbed from us. And more than that, that even in the the challenges and the trials, the grace and the mercy and the presence of God is mediated. I thank the Lord for that pastor in the midst of so much suffering that he extended the grace of God. Came across another story. This time from the BBC News website, 2nd of June, 2007. Amazing story. If um, I pronounce the names incorrectly, it's because I don't speak Polish. Headline, Pole wakes up from 19-year coma. Mr. Grebski, I think it was, credits his survival to his wife, Gertruda. And the news report said this. A Polish man has woken up from a 19-year coma to find the Communist Party no longer in power and food no longer rationed. Railway, railway worker Jan Grebski, 65, fell into a coma after he was hit by a train in 1988. He said, ''Now I see people on the streets with mobile phones, and there are so many goods in the shops, it makes my head spin.'' He credits his survival to his wife, Gertruda, who cared for him. Doctors gave him only two or three years to live after the accident as a comatose patient in a profound state of unconsciousness, which rendered him unaware of both self and the world around him, and from which he could not be roused. It was Gertrude that saved me, he said, and I'll never forget it. She said, I cried a lot during those years, and I prayed a lot. Those who came to see us kept asking, when is he going to die? But he's not dead, she said. When Mr. Grebski had his accident in Poland, it was still ruled by by the last communist leader. He said, when I went into a coma, there was only tea and vinegar in the shops. Meat was rationed and huge petrol queues were everywhere. And then the communist bloc fell. Poland joined the NATO alliance in 1999 and European Union in 2004. He then said this at the end of the report. What amazes me today is all these people who are all around with their mobile phones and they never stop moaning. I've got nothing to complain about. Jesus was full of thanksgiving. But in his prayers, I encourage you in your prayer time, in your life, to stop and give thanks. For the people you meet, for the circumstances, the views, even when things aren't so good, to stop and give thanks. See it as an opportunity that God may bring his grace. But Jesus often would pray for himself. The, the, the big word is supplication. And all of them are focused towards the really tough work he'd come to do where he was going to die and take upon himself the sins of the world. Even as he hung upon the cross and he contemplated and lived out the implications of his faithfulness and obedience. In John 12, 27. Now my heart is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. In the Last Supper, John 17, after this, Jesus said, he looked up towards heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Mark 14, Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. The writer to the Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. And even on the cross, Mark 15, 34, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. Loy, Eloi, lama Sabakthani, which means, my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? And in his last breath, Luke 23, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Maybe the greatest temptation for Jesus was always to turn aside and avoid the cross. We read in his early life, before his ministry began, he was led into the wilderness to be tempted. And we hear of those three temptations. And he was founded on the truth of the word. Yet, Father's will, not my life. But throughout his journeying, he prayed for himself. He prayed for others, yes, but he prayed for himself. We've got a lot to learn in that. How often do you pray for yourself? Now I know that for me, often my prayers for myself is, "Please help me get up on time." Please, uh, you know, let me win this big amount of money this week. Let me. But you know what I mean? Sometimes there's that the list of things. But Jesus points us to a a different way of praying for ourselves. He prayed into his areas of vulnerability. He prayed regularly because he knew that without God's help he could have sinned. He remained sinless, but he needed the strengthening of God that in his vulnerability he cried out to God, help me. Now if that's the example of Jesus, how much more should we be praying for ourselves? Do you kind of in your Prayer time, quiet time, your daily living. Either set time aside or in in the things that you face and you know that you struggle with. Do you commit regularly to be praying and asking God to live his ways? Not to fall, not to succumb, not to give in to temptation. Do you pray, cry out, put yourself before God's grace and mercy and say, help me Lord. Do you do that? Because I know for myself how easily I kind of get on life and I I know my weaknesses and I try and forget them because I don't like focusing on them. Do you know that? I don't like it in myself that I'm full of pride and and I don't like it in myself that I'm so easily led astray in, in certain ways. I don't like it in myself that I forget God so easily. But I know when I examine what I pray, I don't make that a key focus in praying for myself. I'm a bit silly. Reminded as I've been looking at Jesus' prayers, I should pray for myself. Pray that in those moments, I'd see his way out and live faithfully and honorably. Richard Foster, great book, Celebration of Discipline, says in page 43 of it, if you're unwilling to change, we will abandon prayer as a noticeable characteristic of our lives. If we're unwilling to change, we will abandon prayer as a notable characteristic of change. In other words, have you kind of settled with with how you are? Are you still eager to be changed into Christ's likeness And that often means confronting the areas of vulnerability. Where is it that you know, as I'm saying that, that you've just fallen from living God's way? I'm not saying that to condemn you or to... Raise up guilt. But I am saying, know what your areas of weakness are and pray into them. Put them on the top of your prayer list. I need God's grace. Until this is changed in me, until this weakness becomes a way that I can stand securely in obedient submission to Jesus, I will pray into it daily. William Carey said this, Prayer, secret, secret, fervent, believing prayer, lies at the root of all personal godliness. S- prayer, secret, fervent, believing prayer, lies at the root of all personal godliness. In other words, to be holy, we need to be praying and asking God to root out that which is wrong. Strengthness." And we encourage one another to be accountable, to share in prayer triplets or a house group, and be open. And ask brothers and sisters to pray for us. Rightly so. But I'd urge you, before God, to pray for yourself into those areas of weakness. Into those moments where the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. Saying, this is where I want to work on you. This is the area of grace that I want to give you, such that you should become like my son Jesus. Thirdly, the area of intercession. We've talked about thanksgiving, praying for ourselves, intercession. A child wrote an email to God. That's what modern children do. Dear God, I bet it's hard for you to love all and everybody in the world. There are only four people in our family and I can't do it. We intercede. Jesus prays for Simon that he wouldn't give up when he would deny Christ. In John 17, he prays for his disciples and followers and says for those who will come after him and believe in him. He prays for us. In Paul's letters, In 10 of his 13 letters, he says that he's praying for the people he writes to. Crying out to God for them. Jesus is praying for us right now. Hebrews again, 7.25. Therefore, Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. That as you pray for yourself, he is praying for you. Constantly. Intercession is a vital part of what we see Jesus praying for in the Gospels, praying for his friends, interceding. And I hope it becomes much more so for us. There's nothing like a crisis, is there, to prompt prayer? I don't say that glibly. Remember in World War II, in the history lessons, the nation was called to pray. In the face of grave, grave danger, call the nation, come and pray, come and cry out to God. In a personal crisis, when that phone call, when that news, when that circumstance happens, gosh, we turn to pray. We mention it in Alpha often of how and why do we pray and pray. And everyone prays, I think, at some point. Even if people say they're atheists, they'll kind of say, well, what's there to lose? It focuses our mind. One of the, someone said, "The the greatest expression of love that I can offer you or show you is to pray for you. Why? Because, yes, we want to help, we want to serve, we want to get alongside and and make a difference, and offer love practically, and even just sit sometimes and say, we're here. But a greater expression of love is to bring that person in prayer before our Father, to intercede for them. Because we're truly coming to the one who hears who helps who sends his holy spirit who comforts all who mourn who binds up the brokenhearted who reaches out to the most desperate someone once said in the west there's a there's a bit of an apathy in intercession often stemming from, it's all okay, isn't it? Good NHS. Pension policies used to be all right, but probably maybe just... We might, cons- you know, groan a bit about the cold weather, but we've not got cyclones and tsunamis. And And someone commentated from another part of the world, "What it just seems that, the western church is apathetic and the comment came back yeah because we don't see in a crisis course we pray in that boxing day tsunami in the crisis upon crisis when we hear the news of someone who's just been devastated by news course we pray but the comment came back for the western church our eyes are closed Church statisticians tell us 90% of our population in Britain, 70 million people, have little or no contact with Christians. And the comment he made is that the, the church does not recognize that they will be Christless in eternity. 90%, my maths is not great, but that's a lot of people. Millions of people. Brothers and sisters, do we pray. We're praying for revival. We're praying for our hearts to be touched again, to say it matters. Hundreds and hundreds of people know not of Jesus. It matters for eternity, for now. People are lost. I read this powerful story in his book, When a Nation Forgets. Erwin Lutzer retells one of, one of the stories about Christians in Germany in the Nazi era. The man wrote, I lived in Germany during the Nazi holocaust. I considered myself a Christian. We heard stories of what was happening to the Jews, but we tried to distance ourselves from it because what could anyone do to stop it? A railroad track ran behind our small church, and each Sunday morning we would hear the whistle in the distance and the wheels coming down over the tracks. We became disturbed when we heard the cries coming from the train as it passed by. We realized that it was carrying Jews like cattle in the cars. Week after week, the whistle would blow. We dreaded to hear the sound of those wheels because we knew we would hear the cries of the people en route to the death camps. Their screams tormented us. We knew the time the train was coming, and when we heard the whistle blow, we began to sing hymns. By the the time the train came past our church, we were singing at the top of our voices. If we heard the screams, we sang more loudly, and soon we heard them no more. Years have passed, and no one talks about it anymore, but I can still hear the train whistle in my sleep. God, forgive me. Forgive all of us who called ourselves a Christian and yet did nothing to intervene. I tell that story not to, not to kind of wind up the guilt pressure. But brothers and sisters, we have the privilege of approaching our Father through Jesus in the Holy Spirit, in prayer and intercede. Brothers and sisters, God has given us the greatest gift to the world, the gift of good news of Jesus Christ, who is the salvation of the world. We're praying for revival. Part of our call and our belief as a church is to pray, Lord God, send your spirit that there should be a bounteous harvest again. We need that because in all our trying and all our work, our labor, there doesn't seem to be a white harvest field, does there? seems so hard to bring one to Christ. Lord, we need you. We're gathering together, setting aside one hour every month on a Monday evening from 7 to 8 to gather as a God's people and say, Lord, please do something new amongst us. Phil and I are asking with the leadership team that we should all commit that hour. Whether you can make it to Camden and gather together or whether you're going to make that hour at home and turn off the telly and say, for this hour, I will intercede and cry out for this nation and this area and this people and saying, Lord, change the course of this history. Open our eyes to the lost, please. Put that passion for the lost again within us. Or dare we sing our hymns too loudly and hear and not hear the cries. Who else will pray? It's not his people. Earl Ken's, a historian. When speaking of revival. Said prayer ranks first in the coming of revival. There cannot be revival unless Christians pray for it. Jesus prayed for it. Prayed. And there are many many millions now who believe. May we see a great harvest. Let's pray. We come to this table, Jesus.